Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Monday, September 3rd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 19. Today I'm going to be completing my mini-series that delves into the three main fertility signs. I started by introducing you to cervical mucus and why it was such a revelation to learn about how cervical mucus changes to facilitate and signify fertility and why this is a major diagnostic sign that you can basically tell in the moment uh, whether or not you're fertile and you can pay attention to that. I then did an episode on how to chart your waking temperature and why that sign is mainly retroactive in contrast with cervical mucus, and it's used to determine the end of the fertile window after the process of ovulation has already occurred. The third sign that corroborates your most fertile days is cervical position, and it's affected by the same hormones that affect your cervical fluid. Very recently, I've been doing cervical position checks every single day and making sure to chart them meticulously, mostly for research and teaching purposes. I think this sign, because it is considered the least important out of the three main signs or considered the kind of optional sign, uh, I think it just doesn't get as much love and there aren't as many teaching resources, so I'm working on that. And I think showing people the visual observations day to day is a better way of explaining this than necessarily explaining it by using words. But I'm going to attempt to do that anyway by giving you some of the details in this episode. In teaching cervical position, mostly to individuals recently, I found that a lot of people have trouble with this sign specifically. They'll either learn about this sign and decide not to chart it, or they're uncomfortable charting it because it involves feeling inside of the vagina. And it made me realize that the relationship most of us have with our bodies and our vaginas is not necessarily one of endearment. And there may be important elements of fear to acknowledge here when it comes to feeling inside of ourselves and teaching this particular sign, which is the most similar to a clinical cervical exam. It may be triggering for victims of abuse and some of the content in this episode may discuss that. So I did want to acknowledge that. And just to be mindful that charting this particular sign may be more difficult than the others, or that some people will choose to focus on the other two main fertility signs, which are temperature and fluid, because they don't have uh, that invasive nature. I do believe that getting to know your cervix can provide more than just fertility knowledge, and that it may have even a spiritual component. Focusing on healing your cervix can improve your relationship with yourself and even address your trauma. So that's something I definitely want to keep in mind when you understand the role of the cervix and that it's such a powerful part of the uterus and it's ours to understand and love in our quest for self-mastery and also fertility autonomy. I'll start by going over some basic information. The word cervix comes from a word meaning the neck, in this case not the neck of the human body but rather a narrowed part of the body and it is a glandular portal that is completely closed and impassable until the fertile window when it opens to not just allow sperm to get through but the cervix and mucus secreted from its glands actually selects the sperm that do make it through to the uterus and fallopian tubes. In this episode I'll be discussing the cervix as an active participant in fertility rather than a passive benign part of the uterus. The myth that the sperm race to the egg completely ignores the role of the cervix, the cervical crypts, 
and what fertile quality cervical fluid does in selecting the most genetically viable sperm. Sperm are not swimming as much as they are either trapped or moved up in the cervical canal when there is a presence of fertile quality cervical fluid and also through the motions of the uterus and the fallopian tubes. In fact, of the 250 million sperm in the average ejaculate, less than 1 million will arrive at the egg, and the vast majority do not travel directly to the uterus. Many will die just in the hostile vaginal environment, and then the cervix has crypts that act as a sperm filter, using a particular type of fluid in the crypts to tie up abnormal or inadequate sperm. They're sometimes stored there for days. The cervix also serves as a sperm reservoir from which viable sperm are gradually released towards the egg. The sperm that make it to the fallopian tubes are held in the walls of it and are only some of the best of them are able to be released. So going all the way up to the fallopian tube, the reproductive system is actually selecting the sperm rather than the narrative that we have all been taught about the sperm, the most viable sperm, beating the other sperm in some sort of sperm race competition. So that is actually mythic. Now the cervix is divided into two parts. The part that we observe in fertility charting is called the ectocervix. It's the part that bulges out into the vagina that when you insert your fingers, you can feel. The ectocervix has a convex elliptical shape and on it is a small depressed external opening. This is the opening to the uterus above it. The rest of the cervix is referred to as the supravaginal portion of the cervix and is the bottommost part of the uterus. The main function of the cervix is to keep your uterus healthy by protecting it against pathogens. You might remember from episode 13, the fascinating episode on cervical mucus, that the infertile cervical mucus both plugs the cervix in the lowest cervical crypts and is comprised of white blood cells. The cervix only opens for a short period of time each month in response to estrogen. It then begins the process of collecting and selecting sperm to send through during the fertile window. The cervix is also what allows for menstrual blood to flow. When no implantation occurs, progesterone falls and the uterine walls shed their lining. It's extremely sensitive to hormonal messages, which also instruct the ectocervix to rise higher in the vaginal canal, become softer to the touch, and to release a type of mucus that releases the infertile mucus plug. This thereby opens the cervix and begins secreting other types of fertile quality mucus instead. This mucus is highly important for sperm survival in the vagina and directs them into the cervical crypts, which are like nourishing stations for the sperm. The cervix then gradually time-releases viable sperm from its upper fertile crypts, and they continue their journey of being swept into the uterus and fallopian tubes. This maximizes the chance of pregnancy during the fertile window. So why do we use cervical position in fertility awareness charting? In my opinion, the reason is for corroboration purposes only. So it is considered an optional, but in my opinion, important sign. The changes around the fertile window are quite dramatic. So in learning your own pattern, especially in the beginning, it may be best to do your cervical fluid check and cervical position check at the same time. 
It's also not necessary to observe your fluid at the cervix itself. Most of the time when we're talking about cervical fluid, we're talking about exterior sensation or around the vulva. But sometimes I do internal checks to see how the fluid will react once I pull my fingers out into the air. Again, that gives you the chance to feel around for your cervix and become familiar with these changes. It would become more important if you were in a place or a situation where you couldn't record your temperatures or you broke your thermometer. You could use both cervical signs to corroborate your fertile window. You might want to check your cervix, especially if your temperatures don't reflect an obvious thermal shift or if your cervical fluid observations or temperature readings are not easily interpreted or those two signs are not corroborating. The last reason to check your cervix as part of a fertility awareness regimen would be because you absolutely cannot risk pregnancy and you want to further confirm when you've reached infertile days. So it's not to be relied on by itself. However, it really does, if your cycle is healthy, it really does corroborate the other two signs, which in my personal opinion, I find fascinating. And it also just helps you understand all of the changes that are happening at once. So I think it's important for really all of those reasons. And if you absolutely hate checking your cervix, you could choose to only do observations through the week of the fertile window. So once it becomes low, hard, and closed post-ovulation, it's going to stay that way for the rest of the cycle. So really your cervix reading would be the same for the entire post-ovulatory and even the menstrual phase. It's usually pretty hard, even though it's open. So another way of doing this sort of charting and making it easier on yourself is to start the day that you start to feel cervical fluid. And that would sort of put you in a range where you could see when you are becoming fertile. For me, I have a few days of uh, infertile days before my fertility window starts because I have cycles that are longer than 29 days. And so because of that, I can actually use cervical position to tell when it begins softening as well as when I first start feeling fluid. And I'm infertile on those pre-ovulatory days in which I don't have a soft, high, and open cervix as well as not having any cervical fluid and not observing that. Now I'm going to give a short instructional on how we chart cervical position observations. Like I said, this is one that is considerably more challenging for a lot of people. Also, a lot of us have small fingers, and so sometimes having your partner do this or someone with longer fingers can definitely help. Um, so obviously wash your hands, make sure your fingernails are clean and trimmed because especially remember that during the fertile window, your cervix is open, it's more susceptible to bacteria. And just relax your body, try different positions to see which might be best for you personally. I found squatting, crouching, laying on your back with your legs spread, or one leg up on a chair. Those will all work, but try to be consistent for your measurement purposes. So you'll go ahead and insert your middle and or index fingers into your vagina. I find two fingers more comfortable. And you'll be checking for softness, height, opening, and the type of wetness you observe. If you can flex your uterine muscles and push a little, you can make it easier to find. So 
practicing your Kegels will help with this um, process and make it easier for you. So you'll want to feel whether your cervix is tilted or where it's located. I've found that because we have a tampon and pad culture, I guess, when it comes to uh, collecting menstrual blood, it obscures this because it's absorbent. You just sort of put it in going upwards. But uh, menstrual cup users, in contrast, we may already be familiar with the fact that the cervix is not directly up and it's not necessarily sitting straight in line with your spinal uh, column, for instance. So mine is way over to the left, almost tilted pretty far to the side. And uh, so I, when I first started looking for it, when I first inserted my menstrual cup, I bled all over the place because I inserted it like you would insert a tampon and that just completely missed where the cervix was. So uh, you'll want to figure out exactly where it is and that's going to make finding it every day easier. If it's on the left side, it'll always be on the left side. Um, now, you could get uterine massage and actually have somebody move it because amazingly the uterus is sort of freely sitting in the abdomen um, and it can be moved. Uh, and that can actually relieve menstrual cramps. It's something that if you have really terrible cramps but you don't have endometriosis or something, you might want to consider figuring out um, maybe my uterus is tilted, maybe I need physical therapy. That's totally a possibility. Uh, and you can discover all of these you know, things about your menstrual health just by observing your cervix, and that will give you clues. Um, but there's nothing unhealthy necessarily about your uterus being tilted either way either. So you'll feel where it is, and you'll check for that softness, height, opening, and wetness. For me, when it's hard and low and closed, it'll feel like a little like a little egg. Um, and it'll feel like the tip of the nose in terms of cartilage. It'll feel pretty like a pretty hard little convex shape. But then as I approach ovulation, it definitely feels more like my lips. So it feels super soft. The opening sort of goes from being a circle to feeling a little more like a slit, like it feels a little more wide, and uh, sometimes it's just damn near hard to reach um, with my two little middle and uh, ring fingers, and those are all indications as well as like leaking fluid <laughs> that, uh, that you're fertile at that time. Now, if you feel some small hard bumps on your cervix itself, don't be alarmed, um, these are a particular type of cyst, and they're not a big deal. Sometimes the cervical glands may become temporarily blocked and produce these small cysts. They'll typically appear and then disappear without any treatment. But if you feel soft polyps or larger cysts, it wouldn't be bad to have a clinician take a look at that. But uh, most times if you feel these small little bumps, um, it's totally normal, just produced by the glands. So that's the basics of charting fertility with cervical position. The cervix also does some incredible things for us during pregnancy and childbirth. It's interesting to me because some people have heard of the mucus plug before, but only in regards to pregnancy. Most people don't know that you're getting that same plug naturally for the majority of each cycle. The mucus plug will form post-ovulation and especially after implantation occurs where an even higher level of progesterone than normal is present. 
the plug serves the same important purpose of keeping bacteria out of the uterus while the pregnancy progresses. The ectocervix moves towards the back of the vagina for the majority of pregnancy. And somewhere around 37 to 42 weeks, it will begin to point towards the front. It will get softer and rise so high that the ectocervix sort of disappears into the body of the uterus and that convex shape disappears. This is called effacement or the thinning of the wall. And eventually the cervix will open to the 10 centimeter number that we're all familiar with when birth is imminent. There are four phases of dilation. The latent phase, which is up to three centimeters, active labor, which occurs between four and seven centimeters, the transition of eight to 10 centimeters and fully dilated at 10 centimeters. The cervix will change color and flex with the contractions of the rest of the uterus. After your first child, the cervical opening will feel more like a slit and it may never fully close. The key with charting postpartum is to learn your particular pattern of cervical position, um, even if it doesn't feel necessarily as closed as it used to. During perimenopause and eventually in menopause, the cervix will become low, hard, and closed and will remain that way as you stop cycling. So basically, the cervix is very sensitive to hormonal changes that happen during cycling. After that period of life where cycling no longer happens, your cervix will remain in that position. So now that we understand the role of the cervix throughout our fertile life, uh, I wanted to talk about the effects of conventional contraception on the cervix. Part of our culture has made the cervix have no real purpose other than the birth or the labor process. I feel like we don't really learn about it otherwise, and we definitely don't know that it has anything to do with uh, fertility status. That's definitely not revealed to us. But I wanted to talk about how we don't really discuss the cervix and how it can age through the use of contraception and the possible effects that could be long-lasting. It's part of informed consent, which I'll be trying to make more content about. I think that there's a real lack of informed consent when it comes to conventional contraception, and that definitely holds uh, me back from supporting it because uh, it is something that you should be informed about by your doctor, by your practitioner, well before you actually go ahead and make these decisions. And so I think it's been normalized in a way that's actually inappropriate and uh, can contribute to some long-term infertility issues in our culture. I'll start by talking about hormonal contraception specifically. That means pills or the hormonal IUD or the arm implant, anything that's using progestins uh, to interrupt uh, fertility. So whereas pregnancy would rejuvenate the cervix, which is an amazing process, it'll actually rejuvenate the cervical crypts, making the cervix appear two to three years younger, the pill or hormonal contraception actually ages the cervix about an extra year every year that you're on it. So if you take hormonal contraception for five years, it's as if the cervix has aged 10 years in that five-year time. 
And so obviously this is related to infertility issues. And this is because the S crypts, which are the crypts that hold the most fertile quality cervical fluid, they diminish when you use hormonal suppression. You aren't cycling while you're taking hormonal birth control. So these uh, S crypts aren't getting used regularly. And if you do that for an extended period of time, especially more than five to 10 years, your number of S crypts will become fewer. They'll actually atrophy and the cervical canal itself may become more narrowed from the effects of the progestins. Another way of observing this would be that there's less slippery sensation or really fertile quality mucus observed in people who have used the pill for many years because the S crypts have atrophied from those years of non-use and non-cycling and so fertility becomes impaired because sperm have a difficult time traveling up the canal without S mucus present. And not only this, but uh, the progestins that are in the, I, the hormonal IUD, they inhibit sperm from transporting through the cervical mucus at all. So basically, those progestins, they're steroid hormones, but they're meant to mimic progesterone, which would cause the G mucus crypts to create the mucus plug during all of your phases except for the fertile phase. And in the case of the IUD, during what would be the fertile window, um, that super uh, difficult uh, ensnaring G mucus, infertile mucus, is present. So uh, that's part of what's happening with the hormonal IUD. In contrast, the pill, I believe, focuses more on the connection between the hypothalamus and pituitary gland and the ovaries. So your body isn't even necessarily getting the messages to begin the process of ovulation. And that's the other way that hormonally uh, you are suppressing ovulation. But in either of these methods, the lack of cycling, fertile cycling, is what's causing the atrophying of your cervical crypts, especially your most fertile crypts. So that's something to definitely think about if you are using or have used this in the past and are considering pregnancy at some point in your life. Um, I think it does well in the years before that to try to address your cervical crypts and uh, your reproductive system in some way, prepare yourself for that um, because these infertility issues may have to do with your long-term use and when you work with me, I definitely ask people what their history is because I find it important. And I also, in personal practice, have found that people who have used it for longer tend to have more stubborn uh, fertility issues or issues that take a longer time to correct or sway in the right direction. So hormonally, you're definitely um, taking a risk with your cervix to a mediated degree. Of course, many people's fertility returns quickly after using uh, these reversible methods of birth control. However, what I'm focused on is people who have what they call unexplained infertility, but have also used hormonal contraceptives for a long time. I think that what effects it has on the cervix are definitely a key culprit in why it's difficult for that person to get pregnant, uh, whether it's that the mucus isn't present or that the crypts are damaged in some way. 
um, which may have to do with the release of the, the gradual release of sperm, which increases the chances of pregnancy uh, during that time. So these would be sort of the hormonal issues with uh, the cervix and how to keep your cervix healthy uh, for fertility or future fertility. The conventional birth control market has also marketed non-hormonal methods of birth control. Uh, however, these also take place in the cervix. That would be the Paragard or the copper IUD as it's colloquially known. Um, and I think that you should also understand a few things about them before you use them. Um, many times they are used and are taken out without a problem. However, physical problems from the copper IUDs are possible. And again, that's because they are locally inserted through the cervix. And contrary to popular belief, the way that the copper IUD functions is to perform an inflammatory reaction, which prevents a pregnancy. Many times you'll hear it that copper is a spermicide. And that may be true to a certain extent, but that's not actually how the copper IUD is really effective as a birth control. It's rather that copper causes a more virulent reaction in the uterus. Uh, it's considered a foreign body, and this results in uh, secretions from the endometrium that increase the number of white blood cells in the uterus. And these cells, of course, destroy foreign sperm cells, as we know from the G mucus, which does this naturally during your infertile phases. The IUD's main mechanism of contraceptive action causes a local inflammatory reaction, and uh, there's a thousand percent increase in the number of leukocytes in the endometrial cavity after the insertion of the IUD. So your body totally knows that it's there. Even though they say that you know you're not going to really feel it day to day or when you're having sex or whatever, your body, the reason why it works is because your body is inflamed. Your immune system is actually saying, oh my god, there's this object in there. And uh, copper itself markedly increases the extent of that inflammatory reaction. And so that's what impedes the sperm transport and viability. So it's, it's just something to think about in terms of uh, what we are doing to ourselves um, and the pain that's not acknowledged because the copper IUD clearly causes heavier, more painful periods and many people still choose it. One, because they believe that it's non-hormonal even though it's obviously affecting your hormones um, when it's inserted and there's a foreign object in there. But it's marketed that way, and so people choose it for that reason. They think they're doing something better for their health, and uh, they don't realize that what they're doing is causing an inflammatory response inside. And then, of course, there's the fact that many people will either just go through their symptoms and not really acknowledge that it is painful, or they'll just chalk it up to uh, being you know, fertile and wanting to have sex. Um, so I, I think that how, no matter how you feel about it, you have the right to know exactly how these uh, methods work, and that's something that's definitely not revealed to us when we talk about the IUD. Nobody tells you that its main function is to cause an inflammatory response. 
and that might have to do with a lot of the pain that people feel or a lot of the excessive bleeding. So these are just some things to think about in regards to, you know, the cervix is a really beautiful, uh, amazing, constantly changing thing, and that's what I've appreciated about it since I started charting it for fertility awareness purposes. I think it's given me a whole new respect for it, and it does way more things than I would have ever known. So the way that birth control suppresses hormones and suppresses the cervix um, and it causes it to uh, be inflamed or sick to the point that you can't have a a pregnancy happen, it it definitely has a more sinister undertone um, than the liberation that it is posited as. So that's it. I, I use this sign in fertility awareness because it's a great corroborating sign and it is a beautiful thing to watch your cervix and to start to get to know your cervix and feel comfortable touching it and have your partner start to understand it. And uh, I think that it definitely can help anyone learn someone's fertility status, whether they're just a casual sexual partner or uh, someone that you may be charting with every single day just for them to be clued in and also participating can be really empowering or for couples who are suffering from infertility um, just getting to know the changes and knowing exactly when the chance of pregnancy is highest it obviously gives you more information and in my opinion the more information you have for fertility awareness whether it's the three main fertility signs or it's some secondary fertility signs like you get really hungry and tired before your period. Like, no matter what it is, I think the more information you have, the more effective it is. And you can hone in the window of fertility, whether your goal is to become pregnant or uh, your goal is to continue contracepting. I think that it really serves a, a good purpose to get to know it physically. And then the last thing that the last purpose that it's really good for is for sexuality. I found that since I started cycling with fertility awareness and having sex along fertility awareness rules that, uh, you know, because the cervix changes position, certain sexual positions are difficult at different times in the cycle. And I may not want super hard hitting, thrusting, uh, during my PMS phase because my cervix is really low in my vagina and I don't have as much room as I did during the fertile window. And so it makes sex uncomfortable and your sexual partners could be clued into that as well. So I think it just has so many implications. You can make love all of diff- all these different ways and it really keeps things more interesting. It can also like ward off monotony because you aren't going to do that same position that's more painful during this particular phase. And during the fertile phase, when there is more room, maybe you do want this certain position. And there's just a lot that can be gained from it sexually, I think. And it's made me reclaim parts of sexual autonomy and also confidence and direction. Uh, the You know, the presence to say, like, this position isn't right and I'd like to switch to this one or one where you can control how much of the object or penis or whatever it is goes into you. I think that uh, fertility awareness can kind of clue you into all of that before the sex even takes place 
and um, I find that before arousal but still maybe before sex that it's a really good time to take a fertility awareness measurement so take a cervical position and also take a cervical fluid measurement and say hey like in the moment here right now do I feel fertile because you should be able to determine it from those two things. So that's it. I hope that this episode helped to give you some more information on the cervix. If you are interested, you can go back to my episodes on the other two signs, which are waking temperature and also cervical fluid. The cervical fluid one is very close to this one in the sense that I'm discussing a lot of physiological details about the cervix and what it does, but this was more about the position of it and the fact that it moves around and that it's not just sitting there as this neck of the uterus. So uh, I definitely encourage you to check those out and I hope that you learned a little bit more about the function as you know in general and as well in fertility awareness and why it's important to learn it especially in the beginning. I'm a big fan. I think the charting of it is very beautiful watching it like go up and open and then go back down and close. It's just it's a beautiful it's on a beautiful spectrum. You'll find it sort of visually appealing I think. So um Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please share it with someone who's interested in fertility awareness. Please subscribe and rate me on Apple Podcasts so that more folks can find the show. This episode was brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Action Plan sessions. To learn more, visit the show notes. This concludes episode 19 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Chart and live beyond fear.